This is Gerard Robinson, the co-host of The Learning Curve, talking to you from beautiful Charlottesville, Virginia. I am joined by the very brilliant Kara, who's going to, of course, at some point laugh and then join the conversation. Yeah, I cue laugh. Wait, no I laugh. Now. now I have to do it. <laughs> There's my laugh for you today, Gerard. It's been, a, it's been a day. It's been a day. But no, we're we're getting by. I like being called brilliant. I will always take Brilliant. I'm glad that you are in beautiful Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, I know you've been moderating a lot of panels lately. You are a very popular panel moderator. You're very good at it. So lots going on today. We've got a really, um, we've got a pretty cool guest coming up. I'm looking forward to that conversation. But also, as always, lots going on in the news. What do you have for us this week? So let me start off by saying my condolences to the family of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I should say Justice on her passing and uh, what she meant, not only for the court, but for ideas about women and about men and uh, about just justice. So just wanted to say that to start off. Um, I do think what I have to share is somewhat similar in terms of how little we know about history because there's so much learned about her over the weekend that people just didn't know. But this one was a little disturbing. It comes from Time Magazine, September 18th. And it's written by Sarah Bloomfield, who's the director of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial, and Greg Schneider, who is the executive vice president of the Conference on Jewish Material Claims Against Germany. And it, it's all about a report uh, that was uh, given to over, was it uh, 50 states in the United States, uh, given to millennials and those in the Gen Z category. It was over 11,000 of them. And their knowledge about the Holocaust is troubling. For example, nationally, 48% of U.S. millennial and Gen Z could not name one single concentration camp or ghetto established. No. Although there were more than 40,000, could not name one. Number two, when asked how many Jews were killed during the Holocaust, Holocaust, 63% of millennials and Gen Z did not know 6 million Jews were murdered. Oh Lastly, God. and perhaps you know, most disturbing, is that 11% of millennial and Gen Z respondents believe Jews caused the Holocaust. And so at a point when we are talking about memory and race or ethnicity, uh, this is troubling uh, on a few fronts. So I think this is something we need to look into. And I had a chance to go to the report. And for those of you who are educators, just interested in the role of history and what young people are learning or not. This is worth reading. It's it's really frightening, Gerard. It's incredibly frightening, especially since we're not talking um, ancient history by any stretch of the imagination here. This is very recent, recent history. I, I can remember having a conversation with um, with my own brother uh, after graduating from high school. I won't say where I went to high school. Um, it was a it was an okay public high school in Michigan. I'll say that much. And um, I remember we having a conversation with him once and we were talking about the fact that our history classes sort of never really got up uh, too much past the, into the 20th century. Um, meaning I don't think we had a whole lot of history at all. Uh, but even in my history education, I would have known 
um, I would have been able to name the things that you just mentioned and be able to tell folks how many Jews were lost during the Holocaust. This is really, really troubling. And I think you're right. I think that the guest that we'll be speaking with today is going to have a lot to say about the importance of, of remembering, um, remembering such horrific tragedies and events. Um, mine is not certainly not an uplifting story either, but it's one that I think is really, really important now that we are so far into the fall, but with many districts still, um, you know, experimenting with remote learning at this point in time. And I think I would like to say I'm hearing positive feedback, at least anecdotally from friends and family members who are engaged in remote learning right now. And that, I, that feels great to hear because for, for families who need the option to go remote, um, even if they wanted something different, if we can be, um, assured that educators and school districts have really made strides in bringing remote learning up to speed since the spring, I think that that's incredibly important. But this particular article um, it's actually, it's from, I believe it's from cbsnews.com talks about, um, how black families in particular are more likely to opt for remote learning. And in the art, the title of the article is written by Kate Smith is how can I trust it now? Worry of the system, mm. black families opt for remote learning. And this I thought was a really important article highlighting the why behind why so many black families um, when given the option, have chosen remote learning. The, are like, the article highlights that in one, dif- in one district in particular, um, just over half of black students in this district, about 54%, opted to begin the school year remotely, even though they could have attended in person. And that number was very different for white students. Less than 20% of white students chose remote learning. Mm. And what the parents interviewed for this article are expressing is that, number one, Um, Black communities in many places have been, well, across the nation, have been much harder hit by the COVID-19 pandemic. And also that just underlying all of this, um, there is a whole different layer of mistrust uh, that black families have not only with um, the health system, but as well with our with our school systems. And so, Gerard, you're probably better equipped um, to, to speak to this than I am. But I found the article really important. And from, you know, from my perspective, uh, not as a black mother, but just from my perspective of somebody who watches education policy, is that this spoke to me to the idea that all families need options, which is multiple. Mm-hmm. Right. So that it's yes, schools should have been opened um, um, live in many places, but that doesn't mean that families would be comfortable with that and that each family has its own unique needs. And in this case, fears um, that are well founded, I would think. Yes. Um, When BAO, the Black Alliance for Educational Options, was founded, the reason options was chosen uh, is because of what you just said, options. And you can equally speak to this as well, given the work that you do through your uh, your charter school, but also the work you do for public school students across the country. It doesn't shock me. Um, when people are given options, they will often say, hmm, I didn't know I had one. And, you know, I tell people all the time, Black people's pursuit of education is older than the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and the Declaration of Independence as evidenced through archaeological finds of pens, what we call pens and tablets, on 
plantations for enslaved Africans. So I'm glad to see the tradition moving forward. I'm glad that there are school systems who are looking at options being virtual. And although in some articles, white parents who do the same thing have been called racist. What do you call the black parents who are doing it? I call parents who love their children and want to do something different. Yeah, exactly. Good stuff. Well, coming up right after this, we are going to be talking to um, researcher and author, linguist um, Jung Chang. And I'm really excited for this conversation, which I think is going to drive at the heart of so much of what we've just discussed at the beginning of the show. So right after this. We're very pleased to have with us today Dr. Jung Chang, the author of the best-selling books Wild Swans, Three Daughters of China, Mao, The Unknown Story, written with her husband, John Halliday, and Empress Dowager Sashi, The Concubine Who Launched Modern China. Her latest book is Big Sister, Little Sister, Red Sister, Three Women at the Heart of 20th Century China. Dr. Chang's books have been translated into more than 40 languages and sold more than 15 million copies worldwide. She's won many book awards and received a number of honorary doctorates from universities in the UK and the USA. Born in the Sichuan province of China in 1952 during the Cultural Revolution, she worked as a peasant, a barefoot doctor, a steel worker, and an electrician before becoming an English language student at Sichuan University. She left China for Britain in 1978 and obtained a PhD in linguistics in 1982 at the University of York, the first person from communist China to receive a doctorate from a British university. Dr. Chang, welcome to The Learning Curve. Well, thank you. It's my honor to be here. So, Dr. Chang, thank you for joining us at uh, The Learning Curve. Got a few questions for you. Here's the first one. Wild Swans is a sweeping narrative about three generations of your family across 20th century China. What are the key lessons you'd like your readers, especially young people, to understand about your grandmothers and mothers often heart-wrenching lives, as well as your own experience growing up in Mao Zedong's China? Well, I would like um, young people to know what life was like uh, under Mao or for the rest of the 20th century in China. Um, I would like them to, um, to, to know what growing up under Mao was like. And of course, when I wrote the book, I wasn't thinking of um, um, you know, this book being a lesson to young people. Um, I wrote the book for a very personal reason. I always wanted to be a writer and wanted to be a writer when I was a child. But when I was growing up in China in the 1950s and the 60s and 70s, it was impossible to even dream of being a writer because under Mao's tyranny, nearly all writers were condemned, you know, sent to the gulag, driven to suicide. Some were even executed. I mean, even writing for oneself was dangerous. Um, I remember writing my first poem um, on my 16th birthday. It was in the the middle of the Cultural Revolution in 1968. And after I wrote the poem, um, I was lying in bed polishing the poem when I heard the door banging. The red guards 
had come to raid our flat, and I had to quickly rush to the toilet to tear down my poem and flush it down the toilet. And that ended my first venture in writing. But the desire to write never left me. Um, in the following years, I was exiled to the, Mon to the edge of the Himalayas and worked as a peasant and as a barefoot doctor and then um, as an electrician. And when I was, um, when I was spreading manure in a paddy field, uh, when I was checking electricity supplies on top of the electricity poles, I was always writing in my head with an imaginary pen, but I couldn't put pen to paper. Then in 1976, Mao died and China began to change. And in 1978, um, I was able to leave China. I was one of the first groups of Chinese to come and study in the West. And then, then I settled in Britain. Ten years later, in 1988, my mother came to stay with me. It was her first trip abroad. And... Um, and, you know, it was the first time she was with me and she could tell me her stories. And she then told me about her, her life, the life of my grandmother. And my mother stayed with me for six months and um, she talked to me every day. Um, when I was out working, she talked into a tape recorder. And after my mother was gone, she had left me 60 hours of tape recording. And then I sat down and transcribed the, um, the tapes and I wrote Wild Swans. And I, because when I was listening to my mother, um, I kept saying to myself, I've got to write all this down. And it also seemed to me that my mother seemed to know that I had cherished this unspoken dream and she was helping me to fulfill my dream. Um, and that's how um, I wrote Wild Swans. That's an incredible story. And it's just so heartfelt the way you tell it. And it's so great for all of us to know where you started and where you are today. And what moved me is when you said you had to flush your writings down the toilet. It's tough for young people I think in the United States and elsewhere to understand just how uh, how much of a revolutionary act it was to write uh, during the time that you were raised. Thanks for sharing that part of your story. Mm -hmm. Let me go to my second question. Wild Swans is part of a courageous tradition of firsthand accounts of life under some of the most tyrannical regimes in the 20th century, uh, including books uh, by Whistle and another one by Harry Wu. Could you talk about the important role that personal memoirs play in revealing the evils of totalitarianism and passing this historical knowledge and wisdom along to students and adults today? Mm, well, I think personal memoirs are very important, so important. I mean, it's so important for the writers themselves, because I believe every one of us who has written our memoirs and felt the urge to write. I mean, when I, before I wrote Wild Swans, I had 
so many nightmares and you know horrible scenes and i'm you know cried out from the dream um but i mean writing wild swans um, is cathartic for me and i also have um, therefore turned trauma into memory i could i can now record the past without too much pain i think most people in china have not had the the good luck to turn their traumas into memory so you see a lot of signs of trauma in people and people can't bear to talk about their past and i saw myself when i was in china in the 1990s and i saw you know these sort of um, um very confident looking people um just a turn to you know couldn't you know couldn't couldn't speak when the memory of their childhood was evoked um so i um, i think that's important for the memoir writers um but of course our our stories um i believe you know we are as truthful as we can be and then we tell people the real story of our lives that these stories have been suppressed in china and the more so than ever since mao's death in 1976 and people are not allowed to talk about their past truthfully or to even want to want to know to want to know itself was a, is a crime now in china um so i think um i think it's um, we have preserved our memories for the people who um, who can then um, read about them and um, for the future thank you dr chang this is kara i'm i'm back with you after a, a short hiatus and technical difficulties um you were just speaking about about um preserving memories because it's you can't talk about them you can't talk about some of these um things that are in your books and i think it's important to mention that you've written a definitive biography of mao zedong which like wild swans is remains banned right now in china and in fact time magazine here in the us called your book an atom bomb of a book um i think that this is um that um mao zedong is a fascinating uh person historical figure for for many Americans who might not uh well understand um his his influence and and um and how he's formed what China is today i'm wondering if you could share a bit with our listeners um a bit about what you discovered in writing about mao uh, maybe describe some key elements of his reign and and his role as a founding father in the people's republic of china Well, I, my husband and I wrote the book together. We spent twelve years of our lives writing this book, and we did so much research, went to so many archives, and interviewed so many people who had interesting dealings with Mao. And we were very lucky because when we were um, 
doing research. It was mainly in the 1990s when archives, Russian archives, were opened by Yeltsin. And in China, um, there were many, um, you know, sort of documents being published. Um, and the eyewitnesses were still alive. Um, so we interv- I interviewed, you know, people who were very close to Mao in Mao's circle and his colleagues, the widows of his colleagues and his staff um, and major historical witnesses. So I, I was constantly astonished um, by the, the things we discovered from our research. So we wrote a Mao that was really quite unknown, um, so unknown that some people, you know, who were studying Mao before, academics or probably, um, were astonished themselves. And so I think one, we discovered so many aspects of Mao. And the most important thing about Mao's character, I think, is that he was completely inhuman. And he was driven by um, the desire for power. And he only thought of himself. And he was completely indifferent to the lives of the Chinese people. Um, And we discovered how he came to power. Um, Basically, it's a combination of his own his own hunger for power, his complete ruthless um, drive, and also Stalin's help. And basically, Stalin spotted Mao as this um, this most ruthless man who could bring the then tiny Communist Party in the late 1920s. Stalin thought that Mao could bring this tiny party to power, and um, he did. And so 20, 20 years later, um, China became communist. I mean, that, the Stalin's, Stalin's role was, of course, covered up by the official propaganda. And I think we, we um, discovered, we backed our argument up with mountains of documents from the Russian archives and elsewhere. And the other thing was, before Mao came to power, China was ruled by Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists, or the Kuomintang. And Chiang Kai-shek could have wiped out the communists, but he didn't. He let them go, particularly um, during the long march in the 1930s when he could have wiped them out. But Chiang Kai-shek let them go because his son, Qing Guo, was held hostage in Russia by Stalin. And Chiang Kai-shek was desperate to get his son, his only son, his own back. And um, so he basically did this deal with Stalin and he let the communists go and he got his son back. But of course, then the communists grew and grew, and he lost China. And there were so many discoveries. And there was another, another thing which interested me was, you know, Mao was not an idealist. 
usually people thought of him as a bit mad, perhaps even idealist to the to the extent of being a fanatic. But he was completely realistic, and he was cynical, um, and he didn't really believe in Marxism, except Marxism suited him because it suited this kind of uh, a totalitarian rule when all the decisions were made by the tiny few at the top. And Mao was very good at manipulating the tiny few. And many other things. And again, you know, during the war against Japan, and of course the communist line was the communist were the people who fought the Japanese um, when Chiang Kai-shek did nothing. Um, but in fact, um, Mao did everything he could uh, not to fight Japan, um, but to um, preserve and expand his own force and territory. And um, um, so he could um, launch a challenge against Chiang Kai-shek after the war against Japan and seized the power from Chiang Kai-shek with, of course, decisive help from Stalin. This is, I think this is a fascinating part of history that most Americans are probably unaware of. And, and you mentioned um, at length the role that Stalin plays. Um, and often in the West, when we think about the darkest moments in history, we think of Hitler as well. And these are two figures that um, have come to be condemned uh as they as they should, um, but some would say that in spite of Mao's many atrocities and indeed what you've just outlined, that today um, he remains sort of a popular cult figure in in some ways. And I wonder if you have any thoughts about why it seems that some have persistently been able to sort of turn a blind eye to to the to the terror and pain that he caused. I think the main reason. China today is still communist, with the current leader particularly wanting to wind the clock back and drag China into the Maoist state. And with the regime, the regime is, has even issued very harsh laws against people um, to Again, wanting to find out the historical truth um, or buying books like mine. Um, by the way, I'm my husband are condemned as a historical nihilist who blindly wow. seeks truth without the party's guidance. Um, and, um, you know, people could be punished. The party members could be expelled. Um, from the party for reading books like ours. And with this sort of regime um, operating, Chinese historians are unable to voice their views. So there will be no Chinese voice um, against the Mao. You know, if your voice, of course, is, um, is the party line, that's no problem. But um, that, that's welcome by the party. But, but you can't say anything uh, different from the party line. I think that's the most 
important thing. Now, Western academics for many years, I mean, the older generation, I mean, I mean, not today's generation, I believe today in today's generation, I believe mainstream Western view is that Mao is, was appalling and was on the par with Hitler and Stalin. But in the older generation, um, well, for whatever reasons, they had this misguided view that Mao was somehow, somehow a romantic. Um, and, um, uh, and um, you know, half good, half bad. And they were reluctant to accept that Mao was evil and belonged to the League of Hitler and Stalin. I think maybe part, some of them didn't want their youthful pro-Mao, pro-Cultural Revolution dreams being shattered um, quite so much, whatever, for whatever reasons. But I think that state has changed. I think thanks to um, the many personal memoirs which you just mentioned, um, I mean, including mine, and thanks to studies um, like, you know, our, our biography and some other, some many other books, I think the new generation of, um, of perhaps academics, historians, journalists, um, they, are, they, they no longer um, have this rosy picture of Mao. Um, so I, I think Western mainstream Western view um, is that Mao is, I mean, is an evil figure. Well, and it, it's and yes, it sounds like um, your work is very much to thank for that. Perhaps you can wear uh, some condemnation as a bit like a badge of honor in bringing these things to light. Um, we certainly don't want to uh, let this conversation go without mention of your new book, uh, Big Sister, Little Sister, Red Sister, Three Women at the Heart of 20th Century China. Now, this is a group biography of three prominent sisters in modern Chinese history. Um, I'm really curious to know what, what drove you to write about these three women. And um, if you could tell us a little bit about, provide some examples from their, from their lives. Yes. Well, I, you know, after I wrote a biography of Mao, I wrote a biography of Empress Dowager Cixi, who died in 1908, who was the last great royal ruler of China. Um, she, it was she who brought medieval China into the modern age. And before she died, she had made up her mind to turn China into a constitutional monarchy with an elected parliament. And she had, you know, taken steps and produced procedures. And a few months after she died, in 1909, China had its first election. Now, now 40 years later, Mao seized the power and plunged China into a totalitarian abyss. And what happened in those 40 years interested me and made me very curious. And then the person most important and most responsible for this um, transition was Sun Yat-sen, a man called Sun Yat-sen, the so-called father of Republican China, because he was the first person 
who advocated republic. And the reason was that he happened to be in Hawaii when Hawaii turned republic. And that's where, and actually American soil, he picked up the, the, um, the not America, but he picked up this idea of a republic in Hawaii. And, and, and then he became the father of China. Now, so I had wanted to write a biography of him to find out what happened in those 40 years. Um, but then, and then I, then I got bored with him because I realized that he was like another um, smaller scale Mao because all he wanted was power, was his own power. Um, and, and, but in the meantime, his wife, and um, her sisters emerged as people who were very interesting, who were in the center of power in China, because one married Sun Yat-sen, father of China, and one married Chiang Kai-shek, who is Madame Chiang Kai-shek, whom, you know, who in fact set later settled in New York, um, and who made a triumphant visit to America in 1943 during the war and got a fantastic welcome, addressed the Congress, addressed Congress and so on. Um, and another sister who made herself the richest, one of the richest women in China and made her husband Chiang Kai-shek's prime minister and finance minister. And so these sisters' stories really interested me um, because they were in the center of politics and they were political people themselves. But they were not just politics. They, they had many sides to their, to their characters. And Madame Chiang Kai-shek quite interested me for one thing. And she, she had this incredible love relationship with her husband, Chiang Kai-shek. And she actually wanted to leave him many times. Um, but then they, theirs remained a strong marriage. Um, and um, if we have a little time, I'll go, bit, go into the story a little bit. And she married Chiang Kai-shek, sank into a depression for seven years because she hadn't realized what life with Chiang Kai-shek was like. Chiang Kai-shek had begun his political career by being an assassin. He had assassinated Sun Yat-sen's political rival and caught the eye of Sun Yat-sen. And as a result, he, Chiang Kai-shek, was pursued by assassins and some got into their bedroom. And uh, as a result of this um, of, of fright, um, Madame Chiang Kai-shek um, had a miscarriage and was never able to have children. So she was a childless. Um, and um, uh, she wanted to leave Chiang Kai-shek and didn't, and she was not with Chiang Kai-shek during the last, last year when Chiang Kai-shek was in the mainland before he fled to Taiwan. She was in New York and she didn't want to get back to China. And when Chiang Kai-shek went to Taiwan, she initially didn't want to join him there. And, but then of course she was in torment 
she felt, of course, to abandon her husband um, was bad form um, at you know a crisis moment, the, the the biggest crisis moment in her husband's life, and um, and it would be a propaganda coup for the communists. So she then prayed and prayed. She and her the big sister and the, one of the richest women in China were both very religious. So she prayed and she felt she heard God speaking to her, basically asking her to join her husband. So she flew to Taiwan and, um, and of course it was a huge boost to the morale of, of Taiwan. So for the following, in the following years, she was in Taiwan with her husband when Taiwan was in trouble because Mao threatened to seize Taiwan by force several times. And each time she flew back to Taiwan to be with Taiwan and with, with her husband. But when Taiwan was doing fine, she flew back to New York. She eventually, after Chiang Kai-shek died in 1975, she settled in New York and died there. Actually, aged 105 in 2003 after 9/11. So she, you know, lived through three centuries and witnessed the three centuries, and um, her life was long and fascinating. Here's the, the last question. I had an opportunity to travel to China in 2013 and uh, a chance to meet with students, uh, professors, uh, and everyone else, uh, I should say, uh, in Beijing, in Tianjin, in Shanghai, and in some of the rural areas. In every place, we had an opportunity because it was a trip looking at some education uh, work for higher ed. had a chance to meet some uh, women of different ages, a number of them young, number of them middle age and others. What do you see, what are your thoughts about the observations that women play uh, today in influencing, you know, modern day China? Well, I mean, I'm not the best person to answer this question. And this is because after my biography of Mao, I lost my freedom to travel to China. Um, basically, um, I was nearly banned from going to China. And my mother lives there. She is, um, she is nearly 90 now. So through the help of British, British government, um, I was allowed to go to China um, once a year for 15 days, but strictly to stay with my mother. And now, in the last year, last couple of years, last year and this year, I, I didn't go. I think in the future with a situation like this, and I doubt very much I could see my mother again. And um, I, of course, this is tremendously sad for me um, because, um, and you, you know, anyone who's read Wild Swans knows how important my mother is in my life and when she um, is in hospital which she is constantly in and um, and uh, when I, you know I, I, 
I'm dying to be there with her, um, but um, I can't. Um, my mother and I um, have accepted that this is the price we pay for you know, trying to, for me to try to write history truthfully. Sorry, this is a long-winded way to answer your question, which is because of the restriction placed on me. Um, I'm, um, you know, I, I'm not not in that position to know Chinese society intimately. Well, I can surely say, based upon reading your work, that the women today, the ones that I met at least in 2013, uh, mm -hmm. have a set of freedoms and opportunities probably unknown to you and surely your mother. So just know your work is, is bearing fruit. Thank you. I'm going to read a passage about my visit to my mother during the Chinese New Year in 1970. My mother was in a camp and I went to visit her. I hitched a truck and to go and visit her. I stayed 10 days and was to depart for my father's camp on New Year's Day. My nice truck driver was to pick me up where he had dropped me off. My mother's eyes moistened because although his camp was not far away, she and my father were forbidden to visit each other. I put the food basket on my back untouched. My mother insisted I take the whole lot to my father. Saving precious food for others has always been a major way of expressing love and concern in China. My mother was very sad that I was going and kept saying she was sorry I had to miss the traditional Chinese New Year breakfast, which her camp was going to serve. Tang Yuan, round dumplings symbolizing family union. But I could not wait for it for fear of missing the truck. My mother walked a half an hour with me to the roadside and we sat down in the high grass to wait. The sweep of the landscape undulated with the gentle waves of the thick Kogan grass. The sun was already bright and warm. My mother hugged me, her whole body seeming to say that she did not want to let me go, that she was afraid she would never see me again. At the time, we did not know whether her camp and my commune would ever come to an end. We had been told we would be there for life. There were hundreds of reasons why we might die before we saw each other again. My mother's sadness infected me, and I thought of my grandmother dying before I was able to get back from Ningnan, the place of my exile. The sun rose higher and higher. There was no trace of my truck. As the large rings of smoke 
that had been pouring out of the chimney of her camp in a distance thinned down. My mother was seized by regret that she had not been able to give me the New Year's breakfast. She insisted on going back to get some for me. While she was away, the truck came. I looked toward the camp and saw her running toward me, the white golden grass surging around her blue scarf. In her right hand, she carried a big colorful enamel bowl. She was running with the kind of carefulness that told me she did not want the soup with the dumplings to spill. She was still a good way off, and I could see she would not reach me for another 20 minutes or so. I didn't feel I could ask the driver to wait that long, as he was already doing me a big favor. I clambered onto the back of the truck. I could see my mother still running toward me in the distance but she no longer seemed to be carrying the bow. Years later, she told me the bow had fallen from her hand when she saw me climbing onto the truck, but she still ran to the spot where we had been sitting just to make sure I had really gone. Although it could not have been anyone else getting onto the truck. There was not a single person around in that vast yellowness. Well, Dr. Chang, Karen and I want to thank you for spending time with us, for opening up your life, the life of your family to us. I want to thank you and your husband for the courageous uh, stance that you've taken using literature to liberate you know, billions of people's minds about what communism looks like uh, in reality based upon someone who lived there, but also to give us a glimmer of hope and to talk about personal biography and what it means to people in the East and the West. So thank you so much for your time and we look forward to more conversations. Thank you, thank you for having me. And welcome back. We're going to talk about the tweet of the week, and mine is from the 74, September 20th, from Chris Stewart. He is a friend of the Learning Curve, was on one of our shows, and he's one of the smartest guys I know in the area of education reform and thinking about what reform means. Uh, he knows this from his own personal life, but also having been an elected school board member uh, in Minnesota. So here's his quote. I have a real worry about what I'm calling a data vacation. I think that a lot of people are using COVID as a timely excuse to take a data vacation for a year or two. And I think he's onto something. Remember when No Child Left Behind was signed into law and there are a number of people who hate it and people who love it. Uh, the one thing I will say is for the first time since the passage of the 1965 uh, elementary and Secondary Education Act that gave us the platform to create No Child Left Behind or today what we have with the Elementary and Secondary Education Act is accountability and transparency. And so when Rod Page was secretary, he said, listen, I was a superintendent. I was a dean of an ed school. I'm telling you what I know. And so he said, no, we're going to make this data, make data available 
for parents and public policymakers. I do think people are using this as an excuse. I do think we need to put a pause on certain things, but not for the sole reason of trying to hide the fact that we want to be accountable. So as usual, Chris is spot on. He, he is. And, you know, he's many things, but um, what was something that really comes to mind when I hear the term data vacation is this is just a man who who knows how to convey um, a, a great image with words. Right. Like he really he gets to the point we we would spend a lot of time talking about the importance of assessments and accountability. And he's just like, <laughs> you can't take a data vacation because when we don't have data, we don't know the extent to which, most importantly, we're failing kids. And so, when I hear you say that, you know, I've got a sing. I think about the Go-Go's. And when he's talking about a data vacation, I said, wait a minute. Vacation, all I ever wanted. Vacation, that, had to get away. Vacation meant to be spent alone, <laughs> not the data. <laughs> that is definitely the best thing that has happened today. That, Like hearing you <laughs> sing. The go goes is the best thing that has happened today. Um, I'm gonna tweet about that, Gerard. That was <laughs> an amazing way. We're just gonna, we're just gonna. What do they say on all of the news shows? We're just gonna leave it there. <laughs> That's all we need. Okay, but not before I tell you who's coming up next week. Next episode, we're gonna be talking to Brenda Wineapple. Great name. She is the author of the award-winning Hawthorne, A Life and the Impeachers, The Trial of Andrew Johnson, and The Dream of a Just Nation. Hmm. Yeah, good timing. Fantastic. All right. Until next week, Gerard, keep singing. I will do it. 